0: Well, the event of the transfiguration that we just heard about when Jesus changes from looking like an ordinary person to having his face shine like the sun and his clothes become dazzling white and then Moses and Elijah appearing behind him and that voice that says, this is my son, the beloved, with him I'm well pleased and then listen to him. Well, it's reported, of course, in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke And the only other place that it is referred to directly is in this reading that we had earlier from Peter, which is printed in your leaflet. Well, what does it mean? Of course, during the event, the disciples who are with him, we heard they were James, John, and Peter, well, they were baffled. But over time, the understanding that came through the crucifixion and the resurrection and then the coming of the Holy Spirit eventually it all made sense. And actually, you'll recall that Jesus specifically instructed them, don't tell, any about, don't tell anybody about what you just saw. There's sort of a chronological unfolding that needs to happen for the fullness of what that revelation of glory really meant. And I'm going to say that the full revelation of that glory, on the one hand, looked like splendor and honor and kingly power and victory, but absolutely crucial to that glory, to really understanding it, was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and ultimately his resurrection. So there was a chronological way in which the full meaning of what that transfiguration was involved all those events. Well, 2 Peter, of course, gives us a very early uh, interpretation of what the transfiguration really meant for the disciples, and I would suggest ultimately Uh, how it impacts us today. And the specific question, really, well, there's two, probably more, but uh, the, the specific questions that this vision addresses are, one, what does Jesus have to do with everything that came before? What does this healer, teacher, friend of sinners have to do with the teaching of the Old Testament? Basically, with the foundations of Judaism. And I'm going to go go into that in just a minute. But I also, the second question is what does glory really consist of? What really is glory? What's that all about? So, the first question what's Jesus' relationship to Moses and Elijah? Well, Moses really symbolized the law given by God. But in Jewish uh, understanding, it had a very specific Uh, It comprised specific books of the Bible. The law was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So there that is with Moses. And then Elijah symbolized the prophetical works, the prophets, which included all the other scriptures, which, of course, talked about God's promises and his plans for his people, his dealings with them. And, of course, central in the prophetical message is this promise of a Messiah who would come to set us free, to deliver us. So what is Jesus' relationship to these foundational revelations of who God is and who his people are? If you feel like, I don't know, I'm not sure, well, you're in good company because Peter was pretty baffled by that himself, which is very clear when they all appear and then Peter says, um, oh, isn't it just great that all you guys are here together I am going to make three little, you know, shelters so we can all bow down to all three of you, honor you. Well, I'm just going to say, it's, it would be as though there was like a kindergarten play, you know, and for some reason Martin Scorsese happens to attend, and at the end when all the children are taking their bow, one of the parents, very, with very good will, says, oh, Martin, you do drama, you should take a bow with the class. It would be an error of category. Martin is actually film, not uh, dramatic plays, and 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 just degree. Martin's uh, Martin Scorsese's level uh, is just far surpasses, of course, that of uh, the kindergarten. So this error of degree and category that that Peter makes uh, is set straight by God. Uh, It's pretty dramatic. Right in the middle of Peter's well-intentioned speech, there's a bright cloud and a voice says, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus was not just the latest addition of a prophet, nor was he just a moral instructor. He was what all the law and the prophets We're pointing toward. He was the completion of it all. He was God's only son, come down to fulfill the law and the prophets, not just by what he said, but ultimately by giving his life to restore the world, to bring it right. How is this so? Well, in the giving of the law to Moses, God had provided a way for fallen and confused humanity to hear and understand what good really was and what evil really was. Remember in the beginning at the creation of the world, God looks at everything he's made and even humankind, and he says, it is very good. But then this thing called the fall happened when Adam and Eve decided that they wanted to have the power of, to name for themselves what good is and what evil is. You know, that tree. And they ate from it. But it didn't work. Only God decides and declares what is good and what is evil. Eating the apple just resulted in them falling out of relationship with God and falling out of relationship with each other. Remember how they accused each other. And from then on, humanity was pretty confused about what was good and what was bad. But in about 1400 B.C., when God speaks to Moses on Mount Sinai, he is stating once again very clearly what is good in the commandments. He is laying down the instructions for the way to a good life. And Moses had some follow-up conversations with God, and we remember... um, when he does, he, his face becomes shining and radiant, kind of like Jesus, you know. Uh, and so he has to put this equivalent of sort of a tea towel over his face when he goes out because people are afraid of that glory, the glory that was in the good law that God was sharing with his people. So the law was glorious because it revealed God's heart for justice and his enmity against injustice and of course his love of neighbor and for the stranger in the land and reveal god's intimate interest in giving people a way to become the glorious beings that he had intended for us all along i mean he wasn't just some sort of indifferent god or an overly indulgent god who just said "Oh, oh just go ahead and be your sorry little pitiful selves he's not that god either thank goodness Anyway, so that's kind of the law, is God's giving us a gift of how it is that we can be holy and good. And then the prophets encompassed many forward-looking images of the one who would come to set everything right because it was clear to the Israelites it wasn't right. I mean, there was oppression and there was poverty and there were all sorts of signs that they were not living into God's perfect law, that they needed deliverance from their own problems as well as from uh, oppressive powers that kept coming in and sweeping over the land. So the law and the prophets were the revelation that gave people an understanding of what goodness and badness were and provided a hope. God's promise to restore Israel from its tarnished state, both outwardly through freeing her from political oppression and inwardly by cleansing the people from their sins. And then here comes Jesus. How were these prior scriptures just arrows pointing to him? Regarding the law, Jesus not only lived a life that perfectly fulfilled at the heart level, the deepest ethical desire of the law. You know, it wasn't just sort of uh, intellectual answers that he gave, He, he absolutely poured his heart out in the most loving way towards his fellow man and towards God. So he does that, but he also addressed the problem created by the law. And what was that problem? Well, the fact that even though people knew what they were supposed to do, they didn't do it, and that was a problem. Because now the law had named what people were supposed to do, and then they weren't doing it, and that creates a big problem. You know, instead of learning how to be generous through the, the, uh, the law of tithing, people figured out ways to sort of circumvent supporting their parents so they could look pious by, by giving the tithe, but then they actually were kind of uh, um, greedy at the same time. So the law wasn't really doing, it wasn't redeeming people, it actually just only served to condemn people. But Jesus came to complete the work of the law. For Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. That is Romans 10:4. And when Jesus gives his life willingly on the cross, he breaks that hold that sin and its confusion had on humanity. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's what Romans said. So, okay, two questions you might have. One, how how did that work? Might be one. And then the second might be, did it really happen because the world still looks pretty sinful? So, the how question, and I'm only partially going to answer this, but what is on my heart to say today is that what Jesus does in, in going to the cross, on the one hand, it is the most convincing, persuasive demonstration of God's love. He would enter into our situation completely in such a, a costly way. So in that way, I mean, this might sound sort of crass, I don't mean it that at all way, but in some ways it is performance art with his whole self. He is persuading us by what he does on the cross. God loves you. He will go to the absolute ultimate lengths for your salvation. But I don't think that's all of what he's doing there. There are many explanations of what was going on, but the Bible does say that Jesus takes on himself himself the sins of the world like a sacrificial lamb. Now, what is a sacrifice for? In some way, the act on the cross is for God. Now, that's something that a lot of people feel very uncomfortable with, and actually, I've I've been one of those people. I didn't really like to hear that. Because it makes God out to be sort of a monster, But now, I would say the other way of looking at it is that our sinful is a whole lot more monstrous than we want to believe. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of fond of Louise Penny and the Three Pines mystery series. And uh, Detective Gamache, it's now on TV, Detective Gamache uh, assesses a situation in which somebody has murdered somebody else. and, And the person says, oh, she could never do that. She would never. He said, we could all do that. We are all capable of that, given the right circumstances. There is a deep problem in the human soul, and, uh, and it is actually at enmity with God. Paul says in Romans, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. In some way, the work of Jesus on the cross is for God. And through faith, we receive it as our salvation. As I said over my faith journey, I've come to realize that many of the parts of the Bible that really irritated me and I really didn't like are the exact ones that fully promise my salvation and and honor uh, the degree of evil that is in the world that we so know when we read the paper even this morning that that if God is at enmity with evil in the world and if we collude with it there's, there's something pretty drastic that needs to be done and that Jesus has done it and it is a gift to us. By his death Jesus paves a way for his Holy Spirit to enter our hearts and yes, to change them. Not completely all at once, obviously. But most assuredly, when we receive Christ, we have determined that our heart is going to be renewed and God completes the work that he begins. Completes the work. That when we see each other On the other side, we will be tempted to bow down and worship each other because of the beauty of the heart that God has made in us. So Jesus is categorically different than the law, not because he disagrees with God's original instructions, but because he has come to fulfill the righteousness of the law in such a way that he gives us power to become the glorious creatures we were intended to be. Think of it as like a power outage in a hotel and, you know, it's in the, everybody's in the dark and they have these little flashlights and they're looking around to, to not trip and to see where they should go. And, then, uh, and that's the law, by the way, this little torch that we get to sort of see our way around with. And then suddenly the power comes on and then it's all bright as day and very clear. And that is Jesus, the morning star, arriving. And once he's arrived, you don't really need your flashlight in the same way because he is the complete fulfillment of the law. When the light that was Jesus came, he superseded the flashlight of the law. He embodied the Messiah. And isn't it marvelous that while he's revealed to be so categorically brilliant on Mount Tabor, with all that theatrical splash, at the conclusion of the vision, he cheerfully touches his terrified disciples and he says, get up don't be afraid. Because Jesus, like his heavenly father, is never interested in using glory to maintain his privileged status. He goes out on behalf of those who have no privileges. I'm quoting from R.J. Mool there. So there's this thing about glory. What does glory really look like? Well, on the one hand, it is that spectacular, dazzling, victorious, beautiful moment that we have in the transfiguration, but if we really want to understand that, we have to understand the glory of Jesus with us in suffering, in pain, on our behalf, uh, and, and the reconciliation that that provides. The glory of Jesus was not just revealed in splendor, in dizzying successes. It was revealed in his ministry to the suffering. It was revealed on the cross, in the patience of God. And what does that have to do with us today? Well, as church, we're not just one list of dizzying successes, you know? We're still muddling along uh, in suffering, sometimes in shame confusion, lostness, but the church gets to embody Christ on the cross in this world, that glory. If you go to the Bradford Gallery, there's a whole art display called Seeing Christ in the Darkness. Now, you might go there, at first glance, you might think, this doesn't look like glory to me. This looks a little painful. But there is glory in it because Jesus is there. And what is he doing? Proclaiming, I am with you. I love you. The world may have condemned you, but I do not. You are mine. And I'm sticking this out with you. There is glory in the place that we embody as the church. And may we recognize that in one another's faces as we go about our daily life. Amen.